What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you that weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined, as always, by the trusty co-host Dave Marswagger. Dave, what's going on this week? Saul gone, man. Saul Better gone. call Saul. Breaking Bad. It's over 15 years in the making. We're finally at the end. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. And we're gonna we're gonna have a lengthy discussion about Saul. But it when when I saw Saul gone, I was like it felt like a missed opportunity to do that that's Saul, folks, you know? Oh. Like, that felt like, I don't know, it would have been pitch perfect, but... Did they ever use that one before? Maybe they did. Mm, I don't know. It's showtime. Yeah. Saul um, good, man. That's the play, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Well, regardless, we won't demerit them too much on the title of the episode. Yeah, the, the least important piece of the whole thing. So, we'll, <laughs> we'll be talking about that. We have a couple albums to get to, as well as a couple movies, but we're going to implore you. If you're listening and want to catch the, our reviews right as they drop, hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod or go to twitter.com slash nostalgia pod, I guess, but just search us nostalgia pod mm-hmm. on Twitter. Follow the link tree there so you can listen all to the same podcast any way that you'd like to. Dave, we're starting off with EDM music, and that, you know, kind of a catch all term. Um, Hudson Mohawk, the producer for good music as well as uh dj from Mm -hmm. many years ago it's been (laughs) quite a while since we got an album a proper album from him finally dropped cry sugar his return to the album format and uh what a what a listening experience this was i guess you know as, as someone that is definitely plugged into rap music and good music in particular were you excited to have hudson mohawk back making albums yeah, it's funny. I think I don't really think about Hudson Mohawk too much for his hip hop work. He's worked with tons of people, most famously Kanye, previously signed a good music, as you said. And you can look at his credits there. He's, you know, co producer on Mercy. I think he did four Pablo songs, random other stuff, dr- random Drake songs, ASAP Rocky songs, etc. But I feel like none of those moments really stand out nearly as much as his actual, like, pr- producing work as an artist. Most famously, I'd say, as one half of the EDM duo Tonight, which was really formative in the first half of the 2010s when trap music in particular was at the forefront of EDM, kind of in the uh, afterburners of dubstep, I guess. And we talked about Tonight when they had that comeback, EP2, in, at the end of 2019. And Hudson Mohawk's definitely much more prolific than his... Uh, collaborator and tonight there, Lunas, of course, but it still has been actually seven years since his last proper uh, studio solo album. He did, of course, release three archival like mixtapes of old material in 2020, which we did not touch on. So it's still the first time I think most people are probably going to be checking back in on a Hudmo release in some time. And, you know, as a fan of tonight, as a fan of that now very dated and old school uh, trap EDM to hear this album cry sugar. It definitely met my expectations for just how wild and out there it was. It definitely sounds like it was made by someone who is one half of tonight because there's just some crazy shit. OD samples, all kinds of noise, man. It's really hard to, I think, explain a lot of what's going on in cry sugar, but it was also, I think, really interesting because of that. 
Yeah, I think the word that first came to mind for me was maximalist. I mean, this is everything all at once, all the time. <laughs> and <laughs> it is, uh, it, at some points, incredibly overwhelming. At other points, super groovy. And you really hear that that magic that kind of comes from the group tonight. Um, you know, I think when you think of tonight, you kind of think of a song like Higher Ground, one of the mm-hmm. bigger hits from them. And there's a couple of moments on here that definitely approach that. But also just like how like beautiful the album felt at, at other points. And I, I was, you know, I think the first like couple songs, I was kind of just like trying to make sense of what I was listening to. And then for me, the album really takes off once the song Dance Forever drops. And it's just this like super funky, like club uh, bounce song. And it, it, I, I freaking loved that song. And then from there, that's probably my, my favorite run there. Uh dance forever bow is it supposed and lonely days i thought those four songs in a row really like pulled me into the second half of the album and i was just like along for the ride at that point what was your just the overall experience listening because it is a little like out there for sure yeah i think what probably like stood out as like any kind of through line it's really hard to describe anything like that but there was i think a pretty frequent use of like background vocalists or sample vocals of some kind no, no, nothing like super famous that certainly couldn't place any of the samples but that kind of stuff i think was really cool because sometimes he would like really like pitch down these vocals other times he would just intersperse stuff for like half the song it's kind of all over the place um but you know i think you just kind of get all kinds of uh like all kinds of vibes honestly like like all kinds of drums, you know, um, OD drums, minimalist drums. It's kind of the whole spectrum. And I think the moments that reminded me of tonight, those really big maximalist moments are like, you know, encouraging you to just blast out your speaker, blast out your car window. That's probably the stuff that I think is most fun to revisit. Uh, perhaps because it's vaguely familiar, but like stuff like intentions really brought me back to tonight. Uh, behold, is it supposed, which you mentioned as well, those drums there. Um, I think for me, though, I think the one moment where I was like, felt like I was really like taken to a place would be on one of the singles, Big Stan, where it starts out and it's almost like, it, it felt like to me, like an organ, at like a baseball game. And then he like fry the organ into like Super Mario Brothers or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was crazy. Yeah, it definitely had like an old school like Nintendo type vibe and then it has like the laser sound kind of coming over it. It's pretty pretty wild for sure. Um yeah, you know, I I think for for me, like I went back and listened to some of the earlier tracks on the album again after listening through cuz I felt like I kind of got more of a sense of what he was going for and I was really impressed with um intentions, you know, in the beginning. I think it's like probably the most like disco-y 80 sounding track on the whole thing but then he it almost sounds like a, a gex song at points because there's mm-hmm. so much distortion there's so much just like hitching up these like instruments and making it almost sound like you're just like tapping on a computer at points like i don't even know how to like describe some of the the sounds that come out of it but it it all kind of works and <laughs> you know kind of going along with just like this like maximalist view like it, some of the music videos that have come out for this are just absolutely insane. Hmm. Um, I think it's one of the singles 
um i think he actually mixed a bunch of them together and put like a bunch of the the tracks but it has like a mad tv or mad magazine type feel at the end of it where like these faces are like distorted and shifting and some of the videos that he has for like the background of these things like intentions is like uh, a cgi johnny depp in the back of a a car with the the hood down and he's just like in between all these like girls with these like weird images coming around and it's like this hyper realistic super like almost like psychedelic in a sense even though this music really isn't psychedelic and i i guess like what do you think he was like trying to like talk about in this album what 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 was he trying to get across yeah i really have no idea (laughs) <laughs> but it was interesting to me, I think, that in the EDM world of 100 Gex, where Gex is by no means the most popular electronic act these days, but they're one of the most talked about, at least online, at least by the critical community. And I didn't necessarily hear Hyperpop on Cry Sugar. And I'd be very curious to see what Hudson Mohawk's spin on Hyperpop would be, because Hyperpop is a different side of that maximalist in-your-face coin for EDM right. music. So to me, I, I, the point of view to me was, I think, just that he actually had like a kind of an original vision and didn't just chase the EDM trend of the last you know two, two three years. So beyond that, though, I, I, it's, it's really hard to say. I think there's just so many like sounds and switch-ups and genre styles and mashups that you really need to sit with this album and listen to it a lot to i think really try and process it at a deeper level so yeah i don't think i'm there yet (laughs) i think to your point um you know there's he's going for so much on this and he does all of it like fairly well like I, i don't know if i love every single song on here but probably one of my favorite songs uh off this that I, I came back to a few times was Lonely Days, which really reminded me of Porter Robinson in a lot of senses, you know, kind of that more like toned down, like sad boy feel, but it is so beautiful. And uh, you know, the second half, he really pulls in like a, an orchestra almost in a sense, orchestra of like uh, electronic sounds. And it's really, really, uh, I think like thought provoking, emotion provoking, which I, I really loved. And to have that just a few songs after a, a song like Dance Forever, even Bow, it was like uh, such a switch up moment in the album that I thought was really, really uh, impressive. So I don't know. I, I think I think this was just a, a nice return. And if he feels like he's got something to say, so I hope he continues to make music for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, he seems to have many interests outside of music as well, but he also will probably continue to come back because I feel like when you're this kind of producer and you've been at it for over 10 years, that's just how you are as an artist. So I have no doubt we'll hear him again, but I would certainly love a full length tonight album, but I'm not going to hold my breath on that one. Yeah, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't either. Anyways, we'll be adding a song onto our nostalgia best of 2021 playlist, but Dave, we're going to switch it up from, maximalist to i don't want to say minimalist but nikki on the her newest album nicole definitely going for a more toned down stripped back feel and especially like last time i think we really talked about nikki on here was probably the end of last year when when we talked about her single off of the um marvel movie that's slipping my brain shang chi (laughs) thank you shang chi um which is like a super bubbly upbeat song so then going into this album 
I, I was like, what are we going to get from Nikki? And totally subverted my expectation for sure. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And if you just step it back even further, Nikki, who's only now 23, but has had, I think, now three distinct eras of her musical career to this point. She had the, the two EPs, Zephyr and Want to Take This Downtown, and then 2020's debut album, Moonchild. You know, those two EPs were much more like traditional contemporary R&B music. And then Moonchild was definitely in a more synth poppy direction. And then as you said, 2021, she drops perhaps the best song she's ever made every summertime, a song that made both of our top 10 songs of 2021. It's an amazing track that she, I don't know, lowercase wasted on the Shang-Chi soundtrack. I would have loved her to save that for one of her own records. Nonetheless, it still became a big hit for her. And that's great. And now you hear Nicole, that second album. And it, like you said, it's a more acoustic. It's much more stripped down. It's certainly not synth pop. It's certainly not the sound of Moonchild. And I think to some people, they might criticize a lack of musical identity, as you would say. But to me, I think this willingness to genre jump and always doing it well at that is probably that musical identity, at least right now. And uh, regardless, the fact that I continue to enjoy the music I'm getting, no matter what style it is, I think is the most important thing going on here. And I, I like Nicole quite a bit, despite it not being what I expected either. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. And it was an album that, similar to the one we just talked about, I think when I first listened, what I went in expecting and what I got was so surprising that it took me a minute to get into it. But once I got into it, I was really taken by, I think, Nikki's vision for this, as well as just her like honesty and songwriting. And while I think like it's a bit like uneven at points, I, I really, um, I really like got vibes of like, I think Phoebe Bridgers is the one that like initially came to mind, but the more I sat with it, almost like some of Olivia Rodrigo's more like toned back acoustic songs or even like Harry Styles, like fine line type songs on this at, at times. And I was like, you know what, if, if this is like the route she's going to go, it's, it feels totally different than what a lot of people on 88 rising are doing right now. And it feels like a really great lane for her to, to build out on it. It's super personal too, which I think I really liked, you know, this is, it's not just songs where she's just singing about whatever. Like she's really trying to tell a story about herself. So, and for a 23 year old, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I think that's right. And I was definitely struck with her songwriting ability. And like you said, the fact that it is so personal, it is so specific. And even if some of the themes might be familiar at times, it feels very authentic coming from Nikki, especially in this kind of stripped down acoustic type of music making where it's really her vocals and her her cadence to her singing that often carries many of these songs. So, yeah, I did enjoy it quite a bit. I was really struck with one of the singles, which has a music video now, High School in Jakarta. I thought that was perhaps the kind of the pinnacle of her just really showcasing, like, I think, deep uh, personal storytelling ability, where it, it, in a sense, it's, it's quite simple, just kind of reflecting on her past in her younger years and the ups and downs of... Uh, adolescent life you know we've heard that before but i just think the charisma she brings to it is awesome and i think that hook in particular is amazing was it high school in jakarta jakarta sort of modern sparta yeah uh had no chance against the teenage suburban armadas it's like oh my god like it's such a catchy hook and, and the way she also sings really it. yeah i know and it really distills i think the whole song to those verses then like mm -hmm. later on she's like 
had no chance against the Marxist girl with marijuana. And like, again, the way she sings that line, like, yeah, this is my favorite song on the album for sure. Yeah, definitely a standout for me as well. Um, and, you know, earlier on the album, I think I was a little bit less taken. And I think it really finds, at least for me, it found itself a little bit more near the middle when we get like, Facebook friends into Anaheim. Then a couple songs later, Autumn. I really liked those three a lot. Facebook friends is probably the most like Phoebe Bridgers type song on this album. But I really love that chorus a lot. Um but in the rare case, I do cross your mind. I hope you know you always cross mine. I honestly, I can honestly tell you I've been doing fine, but I've done better. I've done better. I've done better. But the way she sings it is so, like, wispy. It almost feels like it's, like, just, like, something she's, like, whispering to herself as she's, like, in her room, like, scrolling Facebook or something. And I just, like, felt the emotion on that song a lot. And I was like, you know what? This is something that I think a lot of, like, high school people could really relate to you know a feeling like of like a friendship or like a relationship lost and you're just kind of like staying friends with them i mean now it wouldn't be facebook it'd be like instagram or something like that you yeah know? like I'll, I'll just keep you on the, the muted list and check in on you every once in a while but um i really close friends of the story yeah exactly um i really like that one and then yeah autumn a couple songs later really stood out to me as well that gave me mm. very like I don't even know it's a little bit more r&b a little bit more upbeat but just something about her like delivery and that like bridge to the chorus just really caught me you know and it, like then it builds up and then it you expect it to go like really hard and it just kind of then like bites itself back and i just was like really uh, i think impressed with how restrained she was on this you know like i think again going back to summertime as like such a banger song you kind of expect these moments to just like flourish and like grab you and she just mm. continually was like no i'm trying to do this like personal album and like brought it back knowing that she has this other card in her back pocket that could just create these amazing songs as well so really impressed by this yeah totally totally i think if you think about her biggest hit uh to this point low key I think the reason that song is so appealing to people and probably why the reason is why it has the most streams of any of her songs would be that that personal uh, uh, lyricism is there, but also Nikki has a really distinct delivery, no matter what genre she's in, where, as you've been saying, like, I think she's just really effective in, like, conveying her words. Mm -hmm. And that feeling, I think, is really present on many of these songs on Nicole, where even if you know, and the style of song is quite different on these than than low key. You can still kind of feel like her her presence across these distinct eras. So I'm not usually a huge ballad guy, but I gotta say, like some of these more acoustic joints, like "Take a Chance with Me" and "The Apartment We Won't Share," I thought they're just really strong. And then I, I think keeping tabs, like the the tempo of of that song is perhaps the most upbeat performance from Nikki on the album, even though it's not exactly like a super upbeat song still. So yeah, I, I think there's, there's a lot to, a lot to enjoy here. Um, and in general, I think this is really, and we're in the midst of a big year for Nikki because she performed at Coachella as part of that 88 rising set earlier in the year, making her and Rich Brian, the first Indonesian performers at the festival. And then later in the year, 
she'll be going on her first uh, headlining tour in the United States. So things are definitely looking up and everyone knows how hot 88 Rising is these days. All eyes on the next Joji record after he had a top 10 hit come out of nowhere, you know, so uh, Nikki, though, things are things are good. So can't wait to see what's next and what genre she tackles next, because she'll probably switch it up again eventually. And she'll definitely crush it. So, uh, again, our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist, where we'll be adding a Nikki song or two. But Dave, out of nowhere, Meg the Stallion, not going the Beyonce route, I guess going the old school Beyonce route, and just mm. announcing that her newest album, Traumazine, was dropping this Friday. And, I mean, it's been a little bit since we, we've heard from Meg. Mm. Um, and, you know, in, in the time between her last album and Traumazine, we've had a lot of personal things come up, uh, being shot by Tory Lanez in the foot. Um, I think it was both feet. I can't remember. I, actually for- I forget some of those details, but this is now the second album where she is addressing this incident because it's definitely something that unfortunately has kind of dogged her in the public sphere and the uh, kind of reprehensible response on many corners of the internet to that saga and then the ongoingness of it with the way Tory Lanez has carried himself and people have covered that. It's, it's a very unfortunate situation that, uh, you know, I just, it's sad ultimately at the end of the day and disappointing because Megan Thee Stallion is such a talented artist with a lot of accomplishments already won three Grammys in 2021 like it'd be nice if we could move past this very unfortunate incident that was not her fault and we could get back to her just being one of the best rappers in the game you know mm-hmm. um, I had thought that she had handled it well on the debut album Good News at the end of 2020 because she kind of did what she did again on Traumazine just fucking eviscerate the haters man because Megan Thee Stallion can rap her ass off and the shots fired track where she flips who shot you from Biggie. I thought that was all that needed to be said, but unfortunately the conversation did continue, mm-hmm. uh, you know, until now it's still ongoing with the litigation, unfortunately. And you mentioned that the, the album came out of nowhere, not unlike the sugar EP came out of nowhere, where of course the savage hit blew up. Megan Stallion is still having label issues with 1601. What the fuck is going on? Why does she have label problems? Yeah, she's it's... a cash cow for this shitty ass label. Why are you fighting her? Why are you fighting her with her, her album? Like, it, it, they're like leaking her shit. It, it, it's it's insane. And you'll see in the first week sales, Megan Thee Stallion is not selling 100,000 this week like she do with Good News because her fucking label isn't helping. You know, it's, uh, again, unfortunate. However, what we did get on Traumazine, I thought was pretty good because sh- news, newsflash, Megan Thee Stallion, good ass rapper. Yeah, she she's great. And, um, yeah, I don't understand why her label would ever try to like, <laughs> I don't know, have this like power struggle with her. It doesn't really make any sense. Uh, just when you have someone as talented as her, you just let them cook. And I, I think on here, what I was most struck by on Traumazine is uh, Meg has really blown up for being a rapidy rapper and someone that can just like bring the energy. And she really tries, I think, to build out her sound a little bit more and get more personal on this album and be more of herself. Talk about things that are more personal to hear rather than just being a bad bitch who, you know, gets money and can 
rap with the best of them and stop on the hose. Exactly. Which I, I appreciate. But I, I think on here, she's really trying to do more, which I, I think she does to varying levels of success. But overall, I was pretty impressed with this. And, you know, r- right from the get go, you get NDA, which I think is just like one of my favorite songs off the album. But it's just like an old school Meg type track and she absolutely crushes it and i thought that was a great start to the album what 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 did you think just about like what you got off the beginning of the album here yeah i um i I think nda is is interesting and it kind of continues throughout this album where megan's not afraid to disperse some personal commentary even some social commentary you know Mm -hmm. i think um she might have been a bit vague in some of that stuff in the past, apart from addressing Tori, I think now she's almost bringing it back to a bigger picture and kind of seeing uh, the way she's been talked about and covered and just in general being a public figure for a little bit now. And she's kind of bringing that into some of her quips where she can rap about, uh, you know, dominating men and not settling and all the things we expect her to say. But then, you know, a bar here, a bar there, she can like get like super macro for a second, you know, and say stuff like on um, uh, fuck, I forget what the song it is where she like throws in a "My Body, My Choice," you know, mm-hmm. or she raps about race once in a while too, and I think that that's really nice to see that kind of progression of what she's thinking about and feeling like she's not settling, uh, with with her lyrics with her songwriting either, you know, that's great. Um, I think production wise. I enjoyed a lot of this album too, because like you said, diversifying that sound seems to be pretty, uh, pretty pronounced on here. I think uh, towards the beginning, we have her, which is basically a hip house song. Mm-hmm. And Megan sounds great on that beat because Megan, the stallion has amazing flow and many flows at that. She's very versatile, but still technical rapper. And when you hear that on more electronic production, a hip house song, it sounds really good too, but she hasn't really done that before. I thought that was pretty revelatory and definitely, I think, points to more songs to make in the future, without a question. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree on um, on her, which I really loved, like, that track. I thought it was a great switch up and a, a nice, um, just a nice, like, shot of energy because she can really go into that old school hip hop sound so easily. So to hear that, I thought it was great. You know, later on, we get anxiety, which I think is probably the most like personal she tries to get on this. And I, I was wondering how you felt about that, because I think in some ways it felt it felt like a good attempt, but that, that didn't totally land for me. Mm. But then I went back and listened a few more times and I was like, you know, this, there's still a lot to like about this song. Yeah, I think ultimately her strength is still going to be aggression mm-hmm. and more traditional rapping. So while I'm happy to see her continue to try this, lest we forget, you know, good news. She had a song where it was, she did a lot of singing. It didn't really work too much. Even on the sugar EP had a bit of that as well. She's been trying stuff here and there. And I think she's again, kind of focusing in on what, what she wants to do. And, you know, anxiety, I think is pretty successful. Uh, definitely better than some of those other attempts. You know, I think uh, a song like star on this album, that's the one where, I uh wait, wait, not star, something else. Uh oh yeah, star with lucky day, sorry. That's the one where like she is probably doing a little bit too much on the singing side of things there. And like I kind of have two minds, because like 
I don't mind her getting to try and diversify herself. But I also feel like she probably doesn't need to do that anyway. Like she doesn't need to prove herself and like make herself into an artist she's not because she's already a really good, compelling artist as is, you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess I don't mind her continuing to try and do stuff, whether it's on the lyrical side of things or on the actual performance side of things. That's a little outside of that box we've come to expect over the last few releases. Yeah, the I, I appreciate her trying the singing. I don't definitely think it's her strong suit, but it's nice to see her like push those boundaries. Yeah, I, another thing I wanted to ask you because there, there's quite a few people showing up on this album, right? Gene mm-hmm. uh, Ioko, Ioko, uh, Rico Nasty, um, Dua Lipa. At the end of the mm-hmm. album, what was your favorite feature here? Probably, I, actually, no, no, let me guess. Pressurelicious was probably your favorite, right? <laughs> so much has been made about the future feature on Pressurelicious, where Meg dropped 250k to get the feature, paying paying the future price apparently, which is definitely a uh, tough to see because it's a pretty uh, unexpected, unspectacular future feature, like many of them are. However, I think Meg saves the song with one of, if not her best lines on the whole album: "I'm stopping on hoes so motherfucking hard." I'm knocking out Mario tokens. Bow, bow, bow. I mean, you know, that's more memorable than anything Future does. You know, um, we're famously not Future guys. So uh, I'm sure some people will enjoy that one. But yeah, in terms of my favorite feature, I thought Janae, Janae Aiko sounded pretty good on Consistency. And I thought that was actually a, a cool pairing because obviously Janae as an R&B singer, very different than Megan. I thought that was nice. Uh, South Southside royalty freestyle is awesome just as a Houston yes. rap posse cut. Someone new on the come up like Sauce Walker, and then you have Lil Kiki and Big Pokey who are more OGs in the scene. Nice to see that. You know, I think um, Travis Scott, the other big Houston rapper right now, I really don't think he's shown as much love in that way to Houston. It's really cool to see this on an official album from a big artist in like Megan. So that was awesome. I thought the Rico feature was pretty good, uh, just because mm-hmm. you know Rico Nasty is a high floor. Nice to see her, hear her there. Would have loved to hear Do- what Doja Cat could have done with Megan, just because they're both operating at such a high level these days. Um, I thought it was cool that Pushaisty was here, given that he is in jail right now. Um, thought that song was just okay. Key Glock, I'm a fan of his as well. Shout out Memphis. Thought that one was just okay too. Perhaps the best feature though, I think, is Lotto. On budget, yes. I think I think that is like a perfect like one two right there. Lotto rapidly rising as well in a similar mold, you know, but also has a bit of crossover feel too with other some of her songs like Ener- Big Energy. You know, I, I thought budget was awesome. Man, Dave, I I thought you were gonna name all those and leave me budgets just come in over the top and like hammer home, but you got it right right in under the wire. <laughs> that was my number one too. I thought them together was an yeah. amazing duo and yeah i think my second favorite was the south side royalty freestyle that was just a an amazing song really really fun to listen back to um and you know and that like that like guitar at the beginning is so like different than anything else you get on this album so it really draws you and gives you that like southern feel and then they just start like flowing together so well really impressive mm-hmm. um how do you feel yeah, about I mean, the duo track sweetest pie I, I, it's ostensibly the lead single of this yeah to me it kind of fits in the a lot of the duo features we've got lately, like what they're totally fine, totally competent in the future nostalgia mold, more or less, but perhaps lacking a bit of that spark. Yeah, I agree. I think I, 
didn't blow me away. I think anything to do is on. She sounds fine or, or at minimum right now. She sounds fine. But I think that song for Meg just feels so like disingenuine. Like it doesn't feel like <laughs> something that actually like she wanted to make more. So her label's like, we can get Dua Lipa on a song. We need to do this. And Meg's like, okay, <laughs> okay fine. Yeah. So like, um, yeah, I don't, I don't foresee her making her uh, future off of songs like that. But if you can get Dua and she wants to make a song with you, why not? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think overall, I just was like for an album we weren't expecting, I was like really happy to get this and really just happy to have Meg making music and, you know, trying to be more of herself. I think that's that's a nice sign for her moving forward. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, you know, going into this, like you said, with little notice due to the label being shitty, I, you know, I, I almost had like a bit of apprehension. I was like, I don't want Megan Thee Stallion to sound stale, you know? And I think that's kind of like a concern trolley thought people have started to propose about female rappers these days because there's so many of them right now. And a lot of like the more like like sex rap stuff from the female side of things is somehow getting criticized when this stuff on the male side doesn't seem to get quite as much flack. wonder why that is. But, you know, Tina Snow, Fever, Good News, the compilation album, Some for the Hotties last year. It's been a steady dose of Megan Stallion to this point, unless we forget, of course, WAP as well with Cardi. So I was really happy to hear that Traumazine did still feel like a step forward for her, both lyrically and also production wise. You know, not that it's a full step forward in either of those facets, it's not, but there's still, I think, a lot of like intentionality in how Megan is approaching her career, despite seemingly having her hands tied behind her back by the label. So uh, hard to be too critical i think completely agree um meg meg is awesome we were big big fans here we'll be adding a song to our now Selja Vesta 2022 so check that out on spotify but dave let's talk real quick about emily the criminal a movie i was not able to make it to the theaters to see but you were and i'm really interested to hear what you thought yes so emily the criminal is a brand new thriller film just out a pretty wide release i'd say last weekend after being a sundance 2022 premiere written and directed by john Patton ford in his directorial debut and notably starring aubrey plaza and aubrey plaza i think everyone knows at this point is a very appealing actor she's very famous online as a bit of a stand community but I think for good reason. She started to make, I think, very interesting choices in her career to this point, post Parks and Rec. You know, I think of uh, kind of a scene-stealing performance in, like, Happiest Season on Hulu, for example. Like, Aubrey Plaza, I think, just has energy to her. But Emily the Criminal is, I think, really fascinating to see Aubrey Plaza in because this is just kind of a straight, like, crime thriller movie with some social commentary and Aubrey Plaza, it's a star vehicle for her. She is the the star of the film. She's in like every scene. And what's interesting about it is it's not a movie where we see the deadpan humor sensibilities that we all associate with Aubrey Plaza, of which she is so famous for because she is so good at. There's not a lot of comedy from her there. But we do have is Aubrey Plaza's presence and energy, which I think just kind of speaks to the general talent of her as an actor. And you know, I think it, I, th- I think it's, it's very well done, just as a compelling thriller film. But what makes it so interesting is I think those like more broader societal comments that are at least on the periphery of the movie. Very simply, 
It's about a woman who's kind of down on her luck living in Los Angeles, working as a caterer at a, for, at a, for a restaurant, and she's struggling to move up in the job market because she has an existing uh, felony on her record, uh, assault uh, conviction we learned was from a domestic dispute in, the, in her past. And she's kind of feeling that desperation. And the movie is really kind of like laying on the struggle of being working class and trying to not be that anymore, right? And uh, it, I think it's juxtaposed very well with her college friend who works at this like hip ad agency. Is always trying to like hook her up and get her out the mud, but never can seem to deliver. And like it's kind of a have and have nots, two worlds kind of portrayal there. And as you can imagine, Emily the Criminal, as the title suggests, Emily starts to uh, take an opportunity when it's presented to her to move forward in her life. And that would be participating as a dummy shopper for credit card fraudsters, where she uses stolen credit card numbers on like, new manufactured credit cards to buy stuff at like a Best Buy. And then they, they would sell that stolen merchandise and she would get paid a cut out of that. And things start to escalate and increase as Emily is turns out to be very good at, at, at the gig. And um, she starts to have more ambition in her uh, uh, fraud, as you could, as one would say. So, it, you know, maybe it's not the most surprising plot per se, but I, I found it pretty compelling. You know, I think the, the other main, the other famous actor in the film, the other uh, major character would be Theo Rossi, who's in a lot of stuff. People probably know him from Sons of Anarchy. Yeah. Um, He's kind of the one who's like running the the fraud ring at times, and then her and uh, him and Emily start to get a uh, more connected and uh, a little romantic, and you know th things escalate as you might expect. But you know, I think it's a bit above just your standard thriller film, your standard crime film, because of I think the way it introduces uh, you know issues in the world, and of course, Aubrey Plaza just has a presence to her. It's just great to, to be with her, especially with this kind of character who is getting increasingly uh, desperate in her life. So I would definitely recommend Emily the Criminal. Uh, if you can see in the theaters or wait for rental, whatever it is, definitely check it out because it's obviously not the most famous movie coming out this year, but I think certainly certainly worth uh, your time. Uh, I love Aubrey Plaza. Uh, she has a unique persona which uh it really appeals to me and uh, i'm glad to see her getting bigger looks theo rossi also is someone that from sons of anarchy i really like so also nice to see them both getting a bigger look together and uh definitely one i want to check out appreciate the uh the recommendation but dave another movie that came out this past week was bodies 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 uh a24 hey, back again helena uh, oh boy, Rijan, Rijan, I think Rijan, Rijan. Yeah. Um, apologies, if actor the name turned is, director is incorrect. But uh, dropping this, I, I guess, like, it, would you call this a horror film? So I would say Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is a thriller film, a horror thriller, horror comedy film. But it's not really a horror film. Film. It's more of a whodunit movie. It's more of a lampooning of slasher horror movie convention. And is, you know, horror Jace, comedy Jace, not necessarily yeah. in either of those camps. Interesting in that regard in terms of what genre you put it in. But I definitely recommend it to people that aren't horror fans. I'm not a horror fan, but I enjoyed this movie quite a bit and did not find it uh, super scary, which was nice. Maybe some people they wanted to be scary. But for me, I was like, no, this is great. 
I'm having yeah. a good time with this. I think saying it's like a thriller whodunit probably makes the most sense, but really also like a meta commentary on current like uh, Gen Z yeah. culture. Um, Gen Z comedy for sure. Yeah. And uh, it has quite a few like up and coming people in it. Right. So Amanda Sten- Stenberg um, is yep. uh, probably the, the main person who, if I'm right, she was Rue, right? She <laughs> in Hunger Games back in the day, she was. Yes. Which is it's kind of crazy because I was like, where? How how do I place her? And then yeah. I was like, Rue. Whatever would have guessed that she was um, in the Hate You Give as well. Certainly a rising actor, seemed to be quite famous these days. And she'll actually be in the Star Wars series from Leslie Headland, The Acolyte, yes. which is exciting as well. Yeah, and then we Amanda also had, uh, yep, uh, Maria Bakalova. From the yep. Borat 2 movie, huge rising star. My Hala Harold um, from Industry. Yep. Shout out there. Um, and then I think probably the one that I was like most excited to see was, was it Rachel Sennett? Yeah. Yes. Um, from Shiva Baby from last Shiva year. From Shiva Baby, we were like he, big fans of. So to see her getting uh, a, another look was awesome. And of course, I think the ones that people know, Pete Davidson, I mean. He yep. was probably the, the most recognizable and really just being himself. It felt like, you know, just mm-hmm. kind of being his goofy kind of dick, but somehow yeah. still like bag himself. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like you enjoyed this movie more than you first anticipated. Would you agree? Yeah. Well, I think going in, and we should know Lee Pace is in this as well. Probably the second most famous mm. person here. Very popular online. Everyone Sorry, knows I looked, him. I overlooked that, but yeah. yeah. Um, you know, going in, though, I was like, mm, horror movie, you know, because at least Solar pitched to you in some fashion as some kind of horror movie. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, is this like is this like Gen Z Scream? Is that what this is? Mm, don't know if I want to watch that. But then, like, you get closer to the release. and This actually uh, debuted at South by Southwest earlier this year. Big reception there. And I was like, oh, no, it's 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 more more meta, more, more of a more comedic, but kind of lampooning the horror. I'm like, all right, you know, I think I can handle it going in. And yeah, I, I had a good time. I think there's a lot of really funny stuff, especially if you if you're a member of Gen Z or you at least a younger person, you understand some of the stuff being referenced here. Uh, I just really like that. And in general, I thought that this young cast of rising stars, uh, predictably, all did a really good job. It was great to to be with them, um, and just kind of watching the hijinks ensue in a movie where uh, something goes wrong and somebody dies unexpectedly when the power goes out this mansion and no one can leave it's like it's kind of a perfect setup for a whodunit movie and you know i think once shit hits the fan it's kind of a raucous time absolutely and uh, you know even the the setup you know where it's like this group of friends who are having this weekend together at this uh you know like this dad's or this yeah. parents they're, they're all rich kids mansion. except for uh maria bakalova Right. And, um, you know, you can tell right right from the beginning that Sophie is kind of this like wild card to the group and people are all kind of like, you know, tiptoeing around her in a sense. And Pete Davidson, like like you said, is playing that like trash bro, like guy who's also like the center of attention and all of it. Uh, Rachel Senna as Alice is kind of the like neurotic like <laughs> loser friend that they kind of keep around. And... A podcast is a lot of work. <laughs> I felt that <laughs> it... one. It is a lot of work. And Mahala Harold as Jordan, you know, just kind of like this, like, 
yes. lurking character who's like kind of warning, you know, kind of like, hey, yeah. you should watch out, like type of thing. <laughs> I, I thought it was like a really, really great setup. And then you have Lee Pace as like the older boyfriend who's like kind yeah. of along, but not really like Tinder a date. part of this generation. Yeah, exactly. Um, really, a really great setup. What were some of the moments that you liked the most? Yeah, I agree about the setup. I think the movie kind of really throws you in with these people and also with the movie's point of view where like in that first scene, I think it is, or second scene where you have uh, Sophie and B in the, in the car getting there and B's kind of like checking the Instagrams of everyone else's uh, profiles before she meets them. Cause she doesn't yep. know these people. And Sophie's like, yeah, they're not as nihilistic as they appear or however she said it. <laughs> and from there, I think this, this movie, it, it seems pretty aware of, of the perspective it has on life and the perspective these characters would have on life. And I thought that was really uh, impressive, you know, from the jump. You're like, oh, wait, these are like all like really privileged rich kids. But also some of them think they're like super woke and they will present present the, those point of views later. And it, it, I think it's just really cool to kind of be with, I think, this kind of perspective. There's been a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of talk lately about a lot of movies portraying Gen Z characters or Gen Z culture in various ways, various forms. And this is perhaps the most overt one of those yet. Um, but I, I just really, I, th- I thought it was really effective and maybe I'm just like being like super easy and like, Oh, I, I get, I'll get all the references. That's good for me. You know, I don't know, but I, I had a good time with that too. Cause I think the, the core of the movie too, like you said, strong setup and then once she hits the fan, I think it's really compelling being everyone locked in a house in the dark. Simple premise, but it's like really effective. And it's pretty believable that they all start losing their minds and things get increasingly escalated and violent. Like that all made sense. So just kind of being with these characters and watching them really expose each other's insecurities at that as they get increasingly desperate. Uh, I just think all that really works. And like I said, the performances really help, I think, kind of carry all that. So, yeah, I had a really good time with it. Yeah, the the uh, setup of, you know, one one friend dying and they're all trying to figure out who the killer is after they already kind of played this game and, and we're already a little bit on edge from this game and obviously from the like friendship dynamics and just how quickly this sort of situation where they're all suspicious of each other leads them to start tearing each other apart rather than, you know, kind of like coming together, I think is an interesting like aspect of um, the meta conversation around like Gen Z culture and like kind of exposing this like uh, therapy uh, vernacular that kind Mm of is like over everything, you know, like uh, when Maria Bakalova is, uh, sharing about her background, how her mom has borderline personality disorder and she had to like go and um, like help take care of her mom. So she didn't yeah. finish college. Right. And that's why, you know, they didn't have all that, that stuff. And uh, Alice, Ra- Rachel Senna is like, no, that's like a really serious issue. Like mental health is really serious. Like the, just the way that she like spoke <laughs> was so like yeah. fake influencer voice and like, so like pitch perfect. I, I was really cracking up at that. I thought that was great. But then like, the way that uh, Jordan played by Myla Harold just is like mm. pushing back against everything, but then like right. so quickly just starts like tearing like uh, Sophie yeah. and be a part of it, probably due to jealousy, also due to the stress of the situation. Just was like 
so well crafted together um and and not in like a way where i think you end up ever like really disliking any of them i think probably b is or um sorry i think jordan is probably the least likable character at points along with Mm -hmm. sophie but overall i don't think you ever end up like hating these characters but you definitely are like yeah "Eh, none of them are probably really good people right well i think the movie doesn't shy away from the fact that they're all wealthy and privileged with the exception of b you know and (laughs) speaking to what you said about jordan like pretty soon after that uh, that other scene you have sophie be like feelings are facts and jordan's like no they're not facts are facts (laughs) that was a, a little bit later i think another like really smart way to do it sophie's like jordan your parents are upper middle class when she was taking pride on being the one person not for money. Yeah. Like, oh my God, that is so biting. So perfect as like a mm-hmm. diss from like your close friends and also exactly what you'd expect from a wealthy person as an insult, you know? Um, that was awesome. <laughs> uh, I thought Rachel, Rachel Senate too, just gets so many good laugh lines. I mentioned the podcast line, but just in general, her, her energy is like, you know, when she's kind of freaking out about the uh, what she doesn't really know about Greg as everyone's starting to question him and maybe he's the killer. Yeah. It's like, uh, uh, he, he's a Libra moon. Like, you know, it's yeah. just like, just Great like some delivery. of the one-liners are awesome and like super on brand for the rest of the movie. You know, speaking of Lee Pace, I really thought the scene where they like find him, they're looking for him because they think he might have killed uh, Pete Davidson's character, David. And yeah, um, that was pretty obvious that Pete would be the one to die too. Yeah. Like, he I don't know if that was in the trailer. I'm not sure, but like I thought, I like for I knew for a fact like he was the one who was going. Yeah, he showed up for maybe like two days and was like, "I'm out of here." I yeah. say, they shot but... this in Westchester too, so Pete just had to like drive upstate from where he lives in the city. It was very easy yeah. for him. Definitely. Um, yeah, w- when Greg they find him on the floor and they're all like accusing him of being the killer, and he's like, "Oh, you're fucking with me." I just thought it was like such like a. I thought that scene was so great because as being this person in this group who's like not of the same generation, doesn't really get a lot of the jokes and the way things like work. And is kind of like still confused about like how these people are perceiving him. I just thought the way that they played that, but then that he actually also seemed really intimidating and scary as he started to like kind of like freak out. I just thought it was like, really really well done from like the thriller horror element of it all because then yeah. you start to really feel like oh maybe it was greg um obviously they're not gonna kill the killer that early and um i thought i just thought that was a really great scene i also really loved the very ending when you find out how david actually dies how pete davidson actually dies i just thought mm-hmm. that was freaking hilarious and totally like surprising to me yep loved it Love that for sure. I think the movie does a really good job, too, of before you learn what actually happens to David, they really kind of keep you on edge of questioning who could have done it, who is good, who's not, whether you think it's Sophie or B or Jordan. I think it's probably those three that you settle on once Greg is gone. And it's like they do a really good job. They really do a good job of kind of melding your the audience, the viewer's perception of Sophie, where you're very sympathetic to her when you first meet her in the beginning of the movie. You introduce the rest of the group and as things happen you start to be much more questioning of her you know even in spite of the fact of kind of jordan kind of going off the reservation uh later in the movie like i think they do a really good job with a lot of these characters um and also should note uh chase sweet wonders plays emma uh david's girlfriend she's the one performer here i was unfamiliar with but uh also enjoyed her presence as well yeah i feel like you know this movie had a bit of a 
soft box office in its second weekend where it expanded. But I, I really have no doubt that this is a movie that's going to last on VOD mm-hmm. and it's going to be clipped out to no end on TikTok and YouTube. And he, I think people are really going to enjoy this and it'll probably have some kind of cult status, you know, and j- just in general, A24 really knows how to, I think, like market their films. That's not a hot take or anything. People know that, but like, this this just feels like something that they will be able to, I think, really sustain even in the, in the fact of a little bit of a light box office right now. So, yeah, I mean, August is not exactly brimming with new releases to see. So I think people should really make an effort to see this if they're interested. Yeah, I completely agree. I also just want to shout out that Carly XCX um, yeah. performed a song for this that she released right. as a single. So, um, you know, if, Carly, girl. If, it's, if it's good enough for Charlie XCX, I think it's good yeah. enough for you definitely check right. it out um but dave let's let's switch gears from movies to television where for all mankind season three finished up this past week and you know for all mankind is a show that i thought had a really a really like intriguing first season i thought really hit his stride in the second season and then took a big jump right it took a huge jump into the 90s in my opinion uh, I guess going from like the late 60s, 70s into 80s, also a large time jump. Um, I was like really interested to see what they were going to do. And we talked about how the show has a lot of moving parts. Uh, it kind of sets the tone that like everything matters. Everything's important. Everybody kind of gets equal time. And I really think that actually detracted from this season being hmm. better. But I still when this show is is humming it really hums and it's really fascinating and you know i I love being with all of the like political um aspects of the show the like how like future might change and like the the exploration aspect of i thought i think is really great so there's still some wonderful parts but some things holding it back in my opinion what do you think of season three yeah i think that's right when you have such a big ensemble you have so many side plots and various storylines because all these characters are all over the world, all over the the galaxy, you know, it's um, inevitable that they will be split up and have different things going on. Um, I thought they did a pretty smart job with connecting stuff as best they could with the introduction of Helios, with the introduction of private uh, space exploration akin to yes. SpaceX and uh, Blue Origin, you know, Elon and Bezos, of course. I thought that was a good job because it was a great use of Sharon bringing her I think into a much more, uh, sorry, Karen, Karen, Karen Baldwin, bringing her into a much more interesting, uh, more having more agency in in her character uh, for that kind of arc. You know, being the the wife of the hotshot astronaut for the first two seasons wasn't exactly the most interesting storyline for a character that got a lot of time as a main cast member and also happened to be featured in one of the prime maligned most maligned subplots, which of course was the. Uh, relationship quote-unquote with Danny of course so mm-hmm. the, the introduction of Helios thing did a really good job too because you could split up people you know people defecting from NASA stuff like that found a way for um, uh, Ed's kid uh, what's her name to, to, to come into the fold uh, too yeah why can't um, sorry Kelly Kelly yes yeah to bring Kelly in you know I think um, I, I liked all that uh, I thought I thought the finale was good with the big traumatic event, but kind of the build up to that with um, the other Stevens boy, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of middling. You know, I, I think just in general too, like 
does anyone like Danny Stevens and younger Stevens? Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I kind of, I mean, certainly Danny. They, they make Danny even more unlikable in season three, of course, being at the the forefront of the tragedy on Mars where people die. But like, that being with them is like kind of like disappointing, right? And I think that's where like you can kind of like feel like the cracks and the seams of the expanse of the ensemble, where it's like, you know, rather than spend time with the Stevens kids, can we like, I don't know have more time with Ellen, the fucking president, you know, like, yeah, Ellen, Ellen has nothing to do for half of this season. And the which, next thing we know, she has a don't ask, don't tell storyline, which I think was a really cool way to introduce like all uh, real history into this alt history timeline. Mm-hmm. And I think it ends in a strong way, but the beginning, like Ellen has got nothing going on and Ellen's yeah. a huge presence. Jody Balfour is so good in the sh- on the show. Uh, I completely agree. And uh, Jimmy, uh, the uh, the younger Steven's son, I, I think him and Danny both um, their their storylines were some of the hardest for me to really like get into. And we kind of talked about the whole like uh, Danny Karen dynamic, which mm-hmm. um, I'm glad that they I, I wouldn't say like moved away from, but like having him be in space and not having it like be a continued like potential ongoing relationship. I'm glad that they nixed right from the get go, um, and obviously the like looming. Will he tell um, Joel Kinnaman's uh, right. Ed uh, is like a still an ongoing thing now, especially with Karen dead. I'm sure we'll get some, that sometime in season four, yeah, uh, right. especially because we're jumping a decade. I can't imagine Ed's going to make it out of another decade. <laughs> so his, no. his death is probably impending. Ed's um, dumb old now. <laughs> so he, old. <laughs> he's like John. Um, John Glenn went into space in his late seventies. So I think that's what we're, we're going for here. I also saw the showrunners kind of tongue-in-cheekly note that there's less gravity on Mars, so perhaps there's some cause of some scientific maybe slowing of aging that we, of course, don't know nothing about in real life on Mars. Who knows? Wow. But, oh, um, wow. I didn't even think about that. The showrunners are at least cognizant of the fact that by jumping forward in time, they're aging their characters rapidly. So I think that's what's also kind of cool about For All Mankind is they introduced a like kind of newer class a next generation on this show through season two and three when you have uh kelly and danny and Aleda, you know it's like there's there's a new group new group new crop coming in so that being said joel kinnaman is the most famous person on the show and your ostensible star it'll be interesting to see how they handle him moving forward we are renewed for season four it's going into production later this month but you had thought they had set this 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 up. Oh, there's like the, the the heroic death for Ed because there's really not much more for Ed to do anyway. He's aging. Like that would actually be a pretty poetic way for him to go, saving his daughter's life, saving his unborn grandchild's life as well. And they fake you out. He lives, mm-hmm. and, and, and Karen uh, dies, and Karen dies. It's like wow, you know. Uh, hats off to that. Didn't see that one coming. I didn't see it coming either. But man, that guy's indestructible. Like oh, he, he's, he's a beast. <laughs> he, he's been through so many traumatic things. He he had like a huge hole in his stomach for like a major part of the end of oh, the season. Right. I forgot. Uh, which I, I thought was like, you know, infuriating. And I was really glad to see his response to Danny. I was afraid that when Danny came Let him off to the hook. him, yeah, yeah, that he was just going to be like, it's okay, son. Like. The fact that he just like stood up to him like that, I thought was like fantastic. Yeah. And Especially now he's after, banished, banished yeah. to the Korean Korean probe, Korean shuttle. That's that's crazy. I did not and, see that coming at all. I know, and we of course have Chekhov's gun buried in this 
in in the Mars dirt, and Danny was already unstable as it was. He, surely he will lose his mind on on Mars in isolation, right? So that that definitely presents uh, interesting possibilities because the rest of uh, Happy Valley are stranded there for an extra cycle. So that mm-hmm. that's cool. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, I think interesting. What did you think about the North Korean aspect of it all? Yeah, I thought that was a cool, cool uh, kind of surprise, un- unexpected. You know, they really uh, set you up with a bit of bit of shock, right? When uh, Danielle and uh, the the head head Russian see the footprints, like what the fuck's going on? Yeah. And it's a nice callback to the first episode of season three, where like the debris from North Korean space flight is what causes the uh, Polaris, I think it was called, hotel to you know nearly kill everyone in the yeah. first episode. But it is kind of funny to see that this, you know, elevated, increased, sustained space race between the the Soviets, between Soviets and the U.S. To actually have the North Koreans be the first ones on Mars is actually just hilarious. Hilarious. I thought that was great. And I I thought the way that they told the story of the uh, North Korean astronaut, you know, his like time up there, I thought that was like really beautifully done. And like... um, how they were like explaining how for him the mission is the number one thing and like he just wants to get back to complete the mission and um just really interested to see how that moves forward um you mentioned the the space race and i thought one of the strongest parts of the whole season was the space race between nasa russia and uh helios helios sorry i was gonna say polaris helios aerospace um really loved seeing eddie Gathegi as dev i thought he was wonderful in the season his Mm -hmm. like presence in the show as like this like i don't know tortured genius elon musk type i thought was really interesting i i hope he's like not sidelined well, I was going to say, kind of with the surprising death of Karen, he's perhaps back in the fold because right. he's no longer, well, his replacement for CEO at Helios is now gone. So maybe he's back. So certainly hope so. they keep him around. I agree. Um, and I really loved not only like the space race aspect, which really propelled the like that first half of the season, but then when they all have to come together because of the numerous things that go wrong, I thought that was mm-hmm. a great way to like, pull everyone back together and um, really enjoyed that. You mentioned before though, the political aspect of this and like the don't ask, don't tell, how did you feel like that was handled in terms of like the uh, introduction of like of the first openly gay president? Yeah, no, I, it's kind of interesting, right? Cause like they, they set a lot of it up where it's like almost like a Nixon Nixon tapes, not not Watergate, but like the Nixon records himself. He's going to get exposed, incriminated, you know, with the tapes in the in the Oval Office. You know, I was like, huh, they're going to position Ellen as Nixon. Very interesting, right? And in general, a lot of untapped potential as her being a Republican president, the leader of the Republican Party, while being a closeted lesbian. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, wow, there's a lot of a lot of potential there. And even though this is an alternate timeline, uh, the cultural sensibilities are awfully familiar, as we we would expect. And I know I, I would have liked more time with it, because I do think a lot of it's super compelling, especially because I think they wisely portray Ellen as feeling like she's portraying, uh, sorry, betraying her community, the, the general queer community, by enacting such a legislation 
which is to her is a is a like a, a settlement, right? And by design is pissing off both sides by not going far enough, uh, or not not you know what I mean not going far enough for mm-hmm. both sides. And it's like, wow, like that that's you know how would you think about that if you were the one who had to make that decision when you in fact are gay? It's like there's a lot of meat in that bone, and they don't really spend a lot of time with Ellen before it gets reversed and Ellen just you know comes out I thought it was really cool to see her announce that to you know save her uh her husband's rep by basically tor- I mean, perhaps torpedoing both of them at the same time but that was handled very well you could probably see it coming I certainly did but man I just I, I just wanted more time with with I think that kind of like palace intrigue of the White House mm-hmm. and the uh, internal squabblings of the Republicans and whatnot because now what's what's up next? Is Ellen still going to be president? Is she going to get primaried? Like, you know, I, I well, don't know because Ellen is, I think, a really compelling character. She's not going to leave the show, but I wonder if she might leave public office pretty fast on the show. Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised to see her leave office. I actually, um, with with the time jump, think that's going to be one of the first things they talk about. Is just like oh, if she right, was, yeah. we're now in two thousand or not. We're now in two thousand three at the very I end. Think so right with the, with the Margot um, scene, yeah, yeah. Which uh, we we should talk about Margot real quick, but just to stay on Jody Balfour as um, President Wilson, I I really really loved uh, everything that was going on with her and really seeing her connect with her um, ex partner and like their conversation. I thought right. was really well done. Um, I I agree. I I think there was so much more meat on the political bone, and you know we we spend so much time with fucking danny and jimmy and like i I get like they're supposed to be like the avatars for uh how this race into the future has like actual personal impact on people and like how it Mm -hmm. has like this uh effect on the average joe kind of so to speak as jimmy i think especially in that perspective but man uh, i would have I would have loved to have gotten a little bit more time in the Oval Office or, you know, some some political things. We, we, I don't even think we talked to the Democrat in this, which would have been interesting to hear their perspective on like, OK, so th- this president you've been trying to, you know, nix their whole agenda now comes out and actually is more aligned with your party, at least in terms of their personal standing than you might think. Like, what's what's the perspective there? So uh, really interesting. Also, just the idea of like this like clean fuel right i think is really like a, right helium three yeah really interesting aspects that's kind of just like yada 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 which i get but it's i don't know i would have preferred a little bit more time with that and with dev i think in terms of his own personal like successes totally yeah now Margot is uh off in the soviet union seemingly traded her freedom for uh sergey's that seems to be the implication using the bombing at NASA to fake her death. That's all very fascinating. I'd love to yeah. know the more, more logistics. I'm sure we'll find out about that over time. Um, and yeah, that bombing itself, kind of a call back to the Oklahoma City bombing of the 90s, which happened around the same time in the timeline of our show here. Um, of course, killing Sharon, fake killing Margot, and also killing Molly as well, which was also a character kind of at the end of her rope. So kind of made sense for her to kind of go out blends blazing metaphorically so yeah i mean Mar- margo being in the being in the soviet union is very compelling too because the show to this point 
through really the last two seasons, never really presented Margo as someone who was like turned as a spy, not like trying to aid in a bet like the Soviets, more so that she was kind of a, a scientist first and was just kind of helping the Soviet program keep up and didn't want them to like die on the launch pad and shit, you know? And mm-hmm. if she truly was compromised or actually feels like her allegiances changed, that was never communicated. So I really don't think that's what it was. And I really think that she just decided to take one for the team and save Sergey and his family. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I, Cause they're probably using her expertise and letting, yeah. cause they don't want, they don't have Sergey's anymore. I think that's the idea, right? Probably has to be. Um, I'm interested to see where they go with that. Just a, Ren Schmidt getting some good looks, not only for all mankind, obviously, but Nope a few weeks back as well. Mm. So uh, that's right. She, yeah. she seems like a rising star. Some of that maybe we should be keeping our eye on. Um, what else from the season did you like or didn't you like? Um, I did enjoy Aleda kind of going on like the yeah the the hunt to figure out what was going on because because she's so smart she saw that there was clearly a, a, some spy spy game going on that was really cool she went um, full charlie day meme uh, uh with with that board i know i know i would have loved more time with that too like mm-hmm. you know there's just only so much time though with this many characters so that was good um how'd you feel about kelly getting pregnant because I like Kelly. I thought it was cool that they brought her to space like this. You know, the NASA versus Helios thing. Her and her dad. I love that dynamic. Um, I like the character. I like the performance. But uh, it, it just felt like awfully contrived that she gets pregnant with this cosmonaut. And on top of that, now it has to be like this life or death thing. I was compelled by it. Sure. But it, it seemed just a little reckless for Kelly, who was not presented in, in as a reckless character to that point. Yeah, it, it just fell out of character. Um, you know, she's so focused and so like hardworking and uh, calculated. Like, you know, even in the, in the beginning of the season, her dad offers to bring her up on the mission to Mars and she turns him down to go with NASA. And then like the second she meets this Russian guy, she's like, all right, well, now we're going to like start just like making love and like having space babies. Like just really, I agree, just was like out of character um i don't know that that was tough and i think the other like tough part of the season which i I wasn't necessarily writing wise but more so just like what was actually happening was seeing like danny is just like a total shithead to the rest of the crew like that incompetent fuck yeah and that the way he just totally like abused that one crew member you know to get the the code to the computer to watch the tapes of karen and and ed's messages and then he basically pinned it on him until he came clean to ed it was just like really really uh like terrible and hard to watch when when he destroys that like mechanical dog i was like fuck this guy get him off the show i was like ready to be done with him and then of course like he actually leads uh ends up killing people by just being incompetent and really tough yeah so now hopefully he's gonna be not redeemed and he's just gonna go off the reservation and they'll have to like put him down or something you know it'd probably be satisfying to see that because we don't want to see him redeem fuck this dude (laughs) Yeah, tough luck for Kelly, though, man. I mean, you got to figure no birth control up there, and they probably didn't didn't bring any condoms due to the weight. So they're probably told just to not have sex. <laughs> yeah, probably should have just said that for sure. Um, uh, you, you think astronauts would probably know that, but eh, whatever. Um, <laughs> Need that also, IUD. <laughs> very, very um, I, I think a very obvious callback to the Martian with her, like, 
connecting to the larger thing where she has to like fly through space you know mm, yeah that was a, pretty much like a the end of the martian to me so i i, I appreciate that I just was like ah, I, I've, I've seen this um on the anyways, same planet yeah <laughs> anyways i think i think for all mankind is a show that if you're not watching it and you care yeah. about space or just like like political fiction or yeah. sorry uh, workplace fiction. drama as well it has a lot of compelling facets um definitely worth the watch yeah and, and like i said season four is going to production later this month so Without a doubt, season four will be out in 2023. Won't be a long wait. Um, we're going to change it up, though, from Apple TV Plus to the end of an era on AMC. Better Call Saul. Finishing up its series last night. Finishing up season six. Jimmy McGill. Saul Goodman. Gene. Takovic. Um, yes, Takovic. Man. What a ride it's been! I I, I just want to ask you right off the bat, like where where does Better Call Saul stand for you in terms of like all time TV shows? Oh, I I think Better Call Saul is certainly one of the great dramas, you know, and I think it's very hard to extrapolate Better Call Saul from Breaking Bad because it's not it starts out as a prequel, ends as a prequel and a sequel, mixes in between. They are so conjoined. It's perhaps more instructive to think about them as a part one and two. Like they're literally the same thing because it's not, it's so much more beyond a traditional prequel or traditional sequel as a show. You know, you have characters returning like Gus and Mike, but those performances are almost like built up by the previous experience of Breaking Bad, even though we're taking place in the past, you know, and Gilligan, Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould are like, even better at writing and making a show like this, having already made Breaking Bad, that they're just so intertwined. It's very fascinating. It really has no parallel, I think, to dramatic television anywhere else. So I I think I like Better Call Saul more than Breaking Bad, but of course there's a huge asterisk when you say that because they're so connected. Um, But just in general, I'm a gigantic fan of the two, and I think it's just a huge achievement. And the journey we went on with Better Call Saul, a, a ending place we did not see coming in any way. Like I think this this whole journey has been such a huge gift and so rewarding. I think that was kind of what you saw last night with people talking online. Like people that have been on this ride just feel so fulfilled and like just so thankful for how this has gone. Yeah, it's it's really impressive. They've made eleven uh, seasons of television. They've made a movie off this it spanned 15 years you know so half of our lives dave this yeah uh, we've been fuck. in this breaking bad <laughs> better call saul world it's really impressive i think what's most impressive about it is both breaking bad and saul were shows that kind of started off feeling a bit uncertain about like where the ride was going to take you right in both shows i think you could say that first season takes a little bit to like find its footing but once it does the show has such a way and and Gould and Gilligan have such a way of honing these characters and refining them to precision and tying everything together and being so thoughtful about how they take care of their characters, how they give them time, how they create satisfying, but like understated endings for all of these storylines that it's hard to not just be completely impressed and, and to like think about this era of television and, how you could not put Gould and Gilligan in the conversation for best 
TV writers and showrunners, if you don't include them in, in the discussion, you're just being negligent. Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought this, I thought this series finale was incredibly impressive. You know, it jumped it, three timelines. It jumped all over the place, hide it all in seamlessly. And I think really brought back to the forefront of the show who is Jimmy McGill, Saul Goodman, Gene Tekovic? Like mm-hmm. that that was really what the core of the show was. And Rhea Seahorn's uh Kim Wexler became such a central part to who Jimmy McGill is, uh, and became really like the other co lead of the show. And it so beautifully tied everything in with that final scene, uh them in the prison. I just was like, Man, this is like chef's kiss masterpiece, like Mm-hmm. Close, close the book. They, they, they can't come back to this world because it was just too perfect of an ending. In my book. I mean, there's truly nothing to come back to anyway. If anyone's advocating that, they just have like shitty taste. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, you want you want to watch Kim perform law in her now return to peaceful life with nobody else you've heard of before, yeah. Except for some other Ansley characters still alive. Like, what's the point? Like, everyone's gone, right? But like, there's no dramatic tension left. Like, everything has been laid out there in a satisfying way there's nothing left to achieve and i think that's what makes this finale as well as um the last episode waterworks um and the episode before that breaking bad all i think really cool for injured bringing back uh walter white jesse pinkman as well as uh, uh chuck mcgill in these flashback scenes and doing it not for a hey look there's that famous actor i love playing a character that i didn't think i would see again it's not because of that it's actually like a really i think smart way and they do it with mike too i think it's a really smart way to kind of like reinforce the themes that are happening in the rest of the episode and you do that by making a new scene with walter white for example like mm-hmm. it's just a huge flex but it's actually serving like a dramatic purpose for the storyline you're being told thought that was a like really impressive really satisfying you know, when I saw it, when uh when Kim in the flashback in Waterworks last week's episode, Kim leaves Saul's office after serving or you know doing the divorce paperwork, mm. and she meets Jesse Pinkman smoking a a bogue on the sidewalk, and they have a yeah. conversation, and it's like such a full circle moment for the show and for the Kim Wexler character, and how better way to serve that than to bring everyone back one more time to see Jesse, you know. <sighs> Like, it, it, it's just a huge flex. And the Breaking Bad episode, of course, which was the much hyped up one we did know about, where uh, Cranston and Paul do come back as Walt and Jesse. And just this small, small scene in the RV waiting for the uh, engine to not flood or the battery to recharge, whatever it was. And they just have a conversation with Saul. Uh, right, It's right after um, they almost kill him and bury him in the sand, right? And it's like, man, like it, I think there's a really really satisfying, really effective uh, conversations for the show. And just another thing too, like it it is (laughs) kind of hilarious that many people, us included, were speculating wildly about the fate of Kim Wexler. Is Lalo going to kill her? What's going to happen to Kim? It's like, man, like this, this was so much better. There's no way Kim was ever going to die because the show is so much bigger than that. And of course we knew she wasn't going to die once Howard did die. I I think everyone knew that, but Man, like it just is a very satisfying ending that still found ways to surprise. Yeah, and I think it's I think Kim's 
arc and especially in the second half of the season where the will she die won't she die is so much more accentuated by uh, or, or says so much more about the show that this was by basically having her live out this purgatory where she's just mm-hmm. suffering through monotony of being a Karen, you know, <laughs> like living a life where she is not challenged. She's not enjoying herself. I mean, the whole like 30 minutes you get of her life where she's like talking with her neighbors about deviled eggs or miracle <sighs> whip with her boyfriend and having yeah. like the most bland sex where he's just saying, yep, yep, yep. Oh over and over. I just was like, holy fuck this is so much worse than probably just being dead because for kim who lived for these thrilling moments with with jimmy with saul you know lived to like pull these schemes you even saw from childhood was kind of like enthralled by getting one over on people to be just living out this very bland life is like the worst possible outcome for her and then you know i I think to like see how that leads to the certainly I would say probably Emmy winning moment of her breaking down on that bus after the conversation with Howard's um, widow was just like so pitch perfect like a, you know you really can't write it better than that and you know to, to your point about like the thoughtfulness of like using flashbacks even the thoughtfulness of like how they set up things in the future right I was really struck by Carol Burnett and her role in this right you know yeah. and, and for a while you're just like you're just gonna get carol, carol burnett this tv legend to just kind of be this like side character there's gotta be right. more here and her being the one that kind of makes everything come crashing down on Saul, kind of pulls the card out that makes the house of cards finally fall in on him was so perfect because where jimmy finally starts to gain some power and really start to become Saul is with the sandpiper case which is based on oh. these older people being you know, like brought it out i don't remember all the details of it taking advantage of yeah uh, financially but all but that being this like central piece of saul's story and then this older person basically had making things come crashing down on him because jimmy had a soft spot for older people you know like in in the long run like that her saying i trusted you i think in that moment really was supposed to bring him back to like all those sandpiper people that i think he actually cared about but also saw an opportunity for his own personal gain i just was like man how the hell did they think to like set this up in this way Mm. it just i thought that was so good and they kind of you know mentioned to you in the flashback with kim how jimmy's like you should have taken that sandpiper money you're gonna regret not taking that it's gonna be a fortune down in florida like I just was like, oh, they're really priming you for that. Just thought mm. that was so great. Also loved all the flashbacks in the finale about the what would you do with the time machine stuff and yeah. how Walter White gets to have like the final like dagger in him where or, or I guess Walter White's final dagger in Jimmy where he's like, man, you've just always been this way, huh? Which really like just harkens back to like that. Like, is he Saul? Is he Jimmy? Like of the show yeah. for the first four seasons. I just was right. like, man, this is so actually written. This is so <laughs> impressive. Yeah, Mike bearing it out there, reflecting on past regrets he would change. And Jimmy, of course, the only thing he can think about is is money, investing yep. in Berkshire Hathaway at the right time. It's like, yeah, it's just the perfect distillation. And then I wasn't expecting to see a Chuck flashback, to be I honest, know. either. Because before that, too, you have that scene um, in the courtroom where Jimmy decides to fess up and perjure himself and expose his true misdeeds to save Kim more or less civil from the civil suit. When he mentions Chuck, they immediately cut the camera to a shot of the exit sign humming. Mm-hmm. 
And I was like, oh, that's like such a nice nod to Chuck, which is who's been off the show for a few years at this point. But then we actually get one last scene with uh, Jimmy just stopping by to bring Chuck's stuff and having that conversation. And at the end, Chuck's like, we're always having the same conversation or however he says it. And it's like, man, it's a really good way to reinforce, I think, everything and show that better call Saul and like this arc of the Jimmy McGill character and Kim as well has just been about morality. That is what this is about. And to me, that's why I think I perhaps like it more than Breaking Bad because Better Call Saul is a show with much less flashy action. Not that the morality of Walter White wasn't touched upon. Of course it was. But Saul, I think, approaches the storytelling with a bit more of a high-minded way where the writing and and the passage of time is what you find so rewarding. And that's why that Mm -hmm. journey is so satisfying. Yeah, and it really spans so much time. And it's really a credit to, I think, Odenkirk, who it's easy for, you know, Rhea Seahorn, I think, to to get a lot of the attention because she is so dynamite as Kim. Um, it's easy to give Patrick Fabian the shine as Howard, especially in these later seasons as he's coming more and more undone. Tony Dalton, obviously, as Lalo, just like an amazing villain one of the best that i think we've ever seen on television and of course michael mando is nacho you know like this like character who i think kind of flew under the radar and felt just like uh, like they were there but maybe i i wasn't appreciative of them until this final season when they really got some wonderful moments and Mm. you know that not even mentioning giancarlo esposito and jonathan banks is just like their steady selves in this series it's like there's so many good performances but odenkirk playing this person who ranges like 20 years throughout the course of the show you know you see flashbacks to him and chuck when they're younger at points in earlier seasons then you see him as gene when he's like in his mid to late late 50s like pretty impressive to see him span this and to jump around in this second uh, part of the last season where he's really going back and forth in time a lot i thought he was just great yeah you know and thinking back a few episodes too um the way Season six really brought everything with Howard Hamlin full circle yeah, in an impactful way. Certainly never saw that coming. I never saw Howard being the reason that Kim and Jimmy would split, let alone the reason they both get done in yep. to varying degrees. You know, I did not see that coming. I think that episode uh, after the cleanup, uh, after his death, you know, when it gets uh, hidden by Mike and crew, when they go to the memorial for Howard and you watch uh, Kim and Jimmy lie to Howard's widow's face about what was going on. It's like, wow. You know, actually this makes sense. Like Kim found her breaking point and yep. it, that's why everything feels so earned on the show because they, it's so much painstaking time. How much time do we spend watching Jimmy fuck with Howard? And you know, for a while you don't like Howard at all. You do dislike yep. Howard as a character. And then by the end, you just feel so devastated about what happened to him and happened to his reputation as well, which is kind of the next step of it too. Like it's, again, it's just the journey and and the, the the time spent feels so rewarding once you see the whole thing happen. Yeah. And to also see Howard kind of be the reason that Jimmy and Kim come back together. When Jimmy learns that Kim gave this deposition to Howard's wife and, you know, potentially is going to be, uh, you know, brought to civil uh, right. court financially ruined yeah and it, it, i think it leads to a really 
wonderful redemptive moment, which I wasn't sure if we were going to get one, but to see Jimmy, you know, come clean in the courtroom in that sense, a very like grand setup, but I, I think it was, you know, very Jimmy McGill showtime, uh, Saul Goodman esque. Um, I, that felt very, very real. And then to like end the series with them just smoking a cigarette, just chatting like, and, and that was like one of the, I think the things that people that really appreciated the like intricacies of the show is like the depiction of marriage as being this kind of like just like friendship partnership doesn't have to be this like this romp all the time it doesn't have to be like super intense all the time a lot of it is mundane and to have that kind of be where their relationship came back together and uh, to see them like that shot that shot of them looking at each other when kim's leaving the prison but knowing that they're like more together in that moment than they'd been even at times when they were sitting next to each other on the couch in later part of season six, it was just like really, really just like amazingly done shot. So like beautifully, I was just like blown away and they couldn't have, they couldn't have done any better, but you know, they, they could have had this huge reckoning where they like finally like talk to each other and share their emotions. But it, it's just Kim kind of pulling a, a I don't know, a, ruse on, on them saying that he's that that she's her uh jimmy's lawyer and then they're right. smoking a cigarette and she just goes you got him down to seven and a half years huh and that's like pretty much like them just shooting the shit again back back yeah. in the <laughs> hamlin uh mcgill uh law firm i was just like man this is too perfect so. yeah also uh, a shout out uh marie schrader Coming back, Hank's <laughs> widow, another mind blowing thing. You didn't expect that, and she gets so great, cool. great, some great lines too. Mm-hmm. The utter disgust on her face when she realizes that Jimmy has negotiated a incredibly charitable plea deal for himself somehow. Like that was was so satisfying too to see like Jimmy slipping Jimmy in all his glory, like mm-hmm. effectively save himself from life imprisonment to seven years, perhaps less. It's like fuck. And then it's so perfect when he sacrifices all of that to save Kim. It's like, yep. yeah, like nothing better. Yep. Uh, you know, just kind of thinking back, are there any like episodes of the show, moments of the show that you really just like look back at and you're like, man, that was like prime tall. Yeah, I think there's a few key things. I think the best Mike stuff is a few seasons back. Everything with the super lab with the Germans. I think they were the. Yep. Right. That was probably the best of Mike on Saul. Really great. Um, Lalo Salamanca, of course, is a was a complete scene stealer for a season and a half. Um, really kind of came out of nowhere with Tony Dalton there. Um, the kind of the menace that he brought. Better Call Saul, I think, really exceeded expectations on the cartel storyline side of things, mm-hmm. where there wasn't a whole lot you would think to gain, because that's all prequel. We know Gus is going to live. We know Mike is going to live. Um, you know, Walter White hasn't become Walter White yet, all that. And yet they really found a way, I think, to, you know, do everything with that. And of course, the long journey you have with Nacho, you know, starting off with some small potato stuff, right? When we see Tuco before Tuco gets sent to jail, finding out Tuco got sent to jail because of Mike, stuff like that, right? And then everything building up until we see how Nacho uh, goes out earlier in season six. There was really nowhere left for him to run. And it's like, wow, I think. The cartel journey, I think, quite impressed me. Um, you know, I think uh, also one of my favorite moments that I've rewatched on YouTube recently was kind of just the 
the end of the Saul, sorry, the Jimmy Chuck relationship where yeah. Chuck gets exposed as being mentally ill in court in by yeah. Jimmy when he hides the uh, uh, cell phone in his suit or whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I think th- there's a lot of stuff where, like, I think early on, some people, like you said, the show takes a little while to get it going. It's a bit slow. The Docker review stuff, Sandpiper, mm-hmm. HHM. It's like, hmm, what's going on here? But then these just grander moments and payoffs begin to happen. And then, of course, starting with season five, it's just a never-ending crescendo as Breaking Bad and Saul unite, and then it's off to the races. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. For me, um, I would say the the courtroom scene where Saul exposes Chuck is just like so devastating and heartbreaking. But I think really like encapsulates the show as well as I think I can't remember if it's that episode or the next one where Jimmy finally decides to like change his name and, you know, gives Kim's the the finger guns, the Saul finger guns. And then how that's mirrored in the next at the end of the next season when Kim gives them back to him when she decides to kind of break bad herself, I just think is like a prime Saul stuff um and yeah there there's like i can't remember exactly which episode it is but there's like a scene when they're all the cartel stuff and it's like mike and lalo are both trying to like find like one of the german people or like go after them or something like that. there's like a chase mm-hmm. like that. that's like another like thing that really stands out to me i can't remember if it was season must have been season five i guess but no, no i think that was early this season when um when lalo is basically on the hunt to figure out yes. about the lab and he goes all the way to germany to like right. get information yeah with yeah. the axe yeah that's good oh man so good <laughs> lalo is such a great villain i mean man. even this season <laughs> when we watch lalo's psycho ass in the sewer <laughs> spying on the lab like that whole build-up too because it's so 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 detailed we watch him stroll into the grocery store wash up in the public restroom and then saunter on back underground like he's fucking pennywise you know Mm -hmm. oh even before that when we find out that he had a body double with his own teeth Uh, set up you know incredible oh my god (laughs) so good um yeah better call Saul. gonna really miss it and it seems like there's just like a ton of um love for this show right now Mm -hmm. and people really appreciating it rightfully so yeah, R- really rooting for the uh, Emmy for for Seahorn there. I- I'd have to imagine the drama Emmy's tough, tough, tough pull here versus Succession. But uh, I think if Seahorn gets the dub here, the way uh, Carrie Russell got the Americans dub at the end of the Americans run, mm-hmm. I think everyone would consider that a big win for the show overall. Yeah, uh, Gilligan is shopping a, a a new show right now. Gould, I think, is also like looking or working on new projects so we probably won't see them working together again but man I'm, anytime we we can uh get them back together anytime we can just watch anything from these two i think i'm I'm totally bought in at this point yeah i mean you gotta think too 15 years they haven't done much else beyond this world so how exciting to see both of them get the flap their wings for the first time in a while absolutely um any last thoughts on Saul? nah man um I feel like th- I think there's a there's a good amount of people that have never watched Saul that are Breaking Bad fans. And I think now more than ever, I'm even more confident in telling people that they would like it. They're obviously very different, but I think the the way the shows became intertwined by the end, I think would really pull in Breaking Bad fans that perhaps were a bit on the fence with the way the early seasons go of, of Saul. So people gotta watch it. Completely agree. Uh, if you liked Breaking Bad, you'll like Better Call Saul.
watch it. But Dave, what should people be watching or listening to for next week? Yeah, we got a few big things coming up. Uh, She-Hulk, Marvel, Disney Plus, people know the drill there. Uh, Demi Lovato record, Rock Roots coming back. H, one of my favorite British rappers, album coming out. And then, of course, on HBO, House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones spinoff is here at last. The trailers look insane. I really cannot wait for Thrones to be back on our lives. Very exciting. And, uh, you know, for good measure, we'll talk about uh, Westworld season four <laughs> because we hate ourselves. <laughs> uh, hit that subscribe button YouTube, on YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod and go to uh, Twitter, search at NostalgiaPod and go to the link tree to follow us there. And any way you want to listen to the podcast, catch you next week. Peace. <laughs>